If you and I are going to be uh, resilient disciples, then we got to know this book. And what is this book is a really important question. Some of you are like, I don't even know what book you're holding. Well, I'm holding a Bible. Uh, some of you have only seen digital ones. This one's actually in paper. Pretty neat. Um, so today we want to talk about what is the Bible. And I want you to think about some like really, really spicy topics, things that are like really controversial in the world today. And here's what I want you to know that here's the question. How do you know that the way you think about whatever controversial topic you want to pick, how do you know the way that you're thinking about that is true, is accurate, is good? Because if I look through history, I can see lots of people who believed what they were doing was true in one era, only to discover in another area, era, excuse me, that, that it isn't. And so if you and I are to grow in a trusting relationship with the author of this book, why did God write a book, and why did he write it through humans, how do we engage with it, and what is it, and then what's our perspective around it? You know, one of the things for all of us, whether we are here or whether we are at home, is that our beliefs are never orphans. We transition from believing one thing to another. And so what does it mean now to live in a country where seven out of ten Canadians do not believe that this is inspired at all? They would equate God's word with the same as they would Harry Potter or whatever other author you would. It's just a book. So seven out of ten Canadians believe it's, it's just a book. That's all it is, like any other historical book, and it's a book I profoundly disagree with. Seven out of ten Canadians, that's what they believe about this book, and for me, that's just opportunity. That's actually not the problem. The next statistic, and the ones I'm quoting are from 2015-16, but I studied them in 2015-16, but the next one I think is profoundly problematic. And it is this, to live their daily lives, so to work, to eat, to sleep, to drink, to marry, to not marry, to divorce, to, you know, consume, to watch, like to, for, to just to live the lives that we live. Uh, only 20%, 21% of Christians in Canada even reflect. I didn't say read. I just say reflect on the Bible a few times a week. So if I get, got 10 Christians together, only 21%, two out of 10, would even reflect. The other eight don't even think about it. But they call themselves Christians, but when in relationship to this book, they don't read it, they don't think about it, the way they live their lives, it has no relevance at all. And so here's the problem with that. Number one is for Jesus, the one whose name, if we call ourselves Christians, we bear. Uh, this book was 10 out of 10. How it influenced his life. In fact, if we went to a book of it called John, the first chapter of John, he says that he is the Word, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Over and over again, you'll see Jesus say this, I do nothing except that what I see my Father doing, and the author of this book is God, and the heart of it is that you and I would do what God does, and live in the world the way God intends. And so for Jesus, this was a 10 out of 10. The other problem, if I get eight out of ten Christians who do not believe or don't even reflect on this book when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to their daily lives, when it comes to everything in their life, oh, they absolutely believe in this book when it comes to their eternal security, but everything else, no relevance at all. This is problematic in Canada today. The same 80% of Christians who don't reflect on the Bible for their own lives now seemingly go around telling other unbelieving Canadians, 70% of it, how wrong they are according to a Bible that they don't even read. 
How many of you think this is a problem? As I said a few weeks ago, and I heard this from another pastor, I can't remember which one, but they said this, the critique of the world to the church is actually we don't believe that you believe what you say you believe. It's not we don't believe, it's when we actually look at your lives, they show you don't believe what you say you believe. And this is a problem of resilience that we want to lean into. And so to grow in trusting scripture, we got to start with floors and we got to start with ceilings. And what I mean by that is all trusted sources of belief in our lives have floors and they have ceilings. Floors represent foundations, basics, starting points of change, whether good or bad. In other words, what you believe began somewhere. It is rooted in something. Whether good or bad, whether you're growing to be more like Christ or being deformed into something looking other, that belief system, that worldview, what you believe about X, Y, or Z, it has a foundation. It may be rooted in yourself, it may be rooted in hope, it may be rooted in a lot of different things, but it has a foundation. Your belief or your disbelief is rooted in something. And it also has a ceiling, and ceilings represent authority, the ultimate deciding factors in our lives. Like when, when I can wrestle, 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 but when it hits here, I'm always going to do this. Every one of us has floors and every one of us has ceilings. And my question is, as a follower of Christ, for your day-to-day life, what does this book speak to your foundational beliefs, to the way you live in the world, and to the ceiling, what's ultimate, what's authoritative for your heart and life. This is what we want to dig into over the next six weeks. Turn the person beside you and say, I won't be coming next Sunday. (laughs) Thank you. What a great church. I heard there's other churches in the city that have more motivational messages. That's great. Now, again, when we talk about like eight out of of 10 Christians that don't believe this, Life Center Church, can we pray for those other Christians who act this way? I know it's not you, and it's, not, it's definitely not me, but m- my goodness, people need the Lord. There was even a song written that sounded like that. It went like this, people need the Lord. And everybody says, yes, they do. Look at the person beside you right in the eyeballs and sing it to them. Say, you need the Lord. I want you to watch the difference in how our beliefs are formed. And Paul says, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words in Romans 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. I want you to think about living in the world like you and I do and how the behaviors and customs of Canadian culture pressure us to change from the outside in. They push on us from the outside to change what we believe on the inside. But notice the difference with how God desires to work in our lives, that God initiates transformation from the inside to show up on the outside. Yeah, all of us are influenced by people, events, and circumstances. Yes, but primarily God wants to change our thinking, and ultimately he uses his word to do so. So the question is, 
What is and what does Life Centered believe about this divine, this human, this two testament, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,202 verses of a book we call the Bible? Well, as followers of Jesus, we believe the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is the written revelation of God's character and saving purposes for humanity, for all creation. As God's revelation, the entire Bible is true and trustworthy, it's the final and absolute authority, floors and ceilings, for belief and conduct in the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible, enables its interpretation and its application. And so following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. Everyone say lifelong pursuit. It may be a class that you take, but it shouldn't stop there. Like if you take a discipleship class, it's not like, ooh, I'm discipled. I, yeah, you took a discipleship class and that's amazing. Like Life Track, that's amazing. Or Heartstrong, that's amazing. You took a class, that's really, really good. But being a disciple of Jesus is this lifelong learning that you and I engage. That how many of you know, it doesn't always go perfectly. It doesn't always go swimmingly. Sometimes it's really hard and sometimes we wrestle through doubt and disbelief, even unbelief in seasons. So following Jesus is his lifelong pursuit and learning to trust what the Bible says about God and what God says about living in his created worlds. How many of you know that sometimes we make things really complicated? We make things way more difficult than they need to be. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, uh, my son Parker was studying for a midterm, and so he was up in the evening, up until the early morning, burning at, at the candle at both proverbial ends, and he heard some rustling in the, 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 the driveway. And there were three gentlemen out there who were trying to, um, I mean, it's, it's borrow one of our vehicles for an extended time. <laughs> for an extended period of time. Like indefinitely. They were looking to borrow our vehicle without our permission uh, indefinitely. And he heard them, and so he kind of made rustling, and he went down, he opened the door, and they took off. But, but not after they did a whole bunch of damage to the vehicle. Um, not like catastrophic damage, just like, gosh, that's annoying damage. Um, I got cut off in traffic, and then I figured out at that moment, like I cut, got cut off really bad, and then it's when I realized, oh, they disconnected the horn, because when I went to lay on it, I was like, oh no. Hey! It didn't really work that way. So anyways, I had nothing to warn. Um, Here's the, but the humor of the story is this. Like, like they, they, they worked so hard to indefinitely borrow our vehicle when, when really all they needed to do was open our unlocked front door, walk six steps, and just take the keys. <laughs> now, we just, some of you are like, why didn't you lock your door? We just forgot, you judge her. Like, why are you looking at me like, oh, you should have, well, I, you, you served you right. Served me right to have the car started. I didn't do anything wrong. I was sleeping. Yeah, we forgot to lock the door. All they had to do was literally walk in six feet, take the keys, and then just like take the car. I'm glad that they didn't figure that out. Some of you are like, well, time out right now. Like they, they can't go in your house. That's breaking an entry. Hey, I actually think when you're at Grand Theft Auto, not the game, in real life, when you're playing it in real life, what is adding breaking entry? If you're going to do something dumb, do it all the way through. But they didn't. And so, praise God, we got the car fixed. It's there. Parker saved the day, hero of the house. And it's great. We have the car. But it did get me thinking. Like, how many times in life does God actually say, hey, here's the key to something, and I'm trying to do it the hard way? Like, I'm looking at it like, you know, okay, like, so, so I want freedom. This is what I want. 
And Jesus says, yeah, but it's through forgiveness. And I'm like, eh, not so much. I want freedom, but I want it on my own terms. See, you and I oftentimes have a love and adversarial relationship with this book because sometimes this book tells us things that we don't like. And it says, actually, what we desire, we have to do what we don't want to do. What it is that we want most is different from what we want to do often. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to say it out loud. I just want to ask the question. Think about it in your head. I'm going to automatically raise my hand. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to like, it's not a trick question. I just want to use it as an example. Uh, How many of you believe that God is love? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, Uh, I do. My question is, why do you believe that? Don't don't shout out answers because it'll get really confusing. Like, just keep it in your mind. Just think about it. Why do you believe that? Why do you believe it? Why do you believe that God? Well, because I want him to be loving. Yes, so do I, but that's not a really good basis. I want a lot of things. Why do you believe that God is loving? One of the ways that I believe that God is love is that there was someone by the name of John, and John actually walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And in watching Jesus for three and a half years, how he lived, how he ate, how he slept, how he lived in the world, Later, John, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote a book in here called First John. There's actually First, Second, and Third, and there's another one actually called just John, appropriately. And here's what he said in one of his books, First John. He said, if I was going to describe God, because I've actually walked with him for three and a half years, here's how I would describe him. God is love. So the, one of the ways that I know that God is love is not because I want God to be love, but because this book tells me he is love. And I trust it as foundational, and I trusted him in his ultimate authoritative. So when life is unloving, or I feel as though I am being treated in the world in an unloving way from God, I have a higher authority than my feelings and my thoughts that ultimately, though this, what I'm walking through, does not feel like God, God, you are love. Jesus actually also said, to sum up the entire love and pro- law on prophets, which is actually the whole Old Testament, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So at the other, other end of the day, it's, 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 it's all about love. Am I spelling that the right way? Well, yeah. So it's all about love. That's what it's about. So I don't know that. I don't, I don't know that. I, I know that because it's God wrote a book. And yeah, he wrote it through humans, and humans are messy, and we get stuff wrong, but God wrote a book. The Word became flesh. That's Jesus. And he knew, and he quoted, and he sourced his way in the world from the Father's word, which he interpreted perfectly every time. And so there are some of us today who are exploring what it means for Jesus to be our foundation. There are some of you that are Catholic, and there are some of you here that are Protestant. That's not the ultimate question in life. What denomination or religion are you? The ultimate question is, are you a follower of Jesus? What's the foundation of your story? What's foundational? Not the church you attend, it's the one that you are abiding within. And all of us are abiding in belief. We are abiding in something. And so some of us today are exploring what it means for Jesus to be foundational. And others are wrestling, profoundly wrestling with what the Bible says. You, you, you trust wholeheartedly that Jesus is your Savior, but when it comes to him being leader or Lord, the Bible would use the word Lord, King, the leader of the life, the one who is showing you as a human being how to flourish and how to live in the world, you have profound wrestles with what the Bible says maybe about faith, forgiveness, finances, sexuality, politics, or idolatry. 
So some of you, again, you trust Jesus as the foundation of your faith, but, but you're not so sure that he should have the final say in other areas of your life. And the data says that eight out of 10 Christians feel this way. They may trust Jesus with their salvation, but when it comes to everything else in life, eight out of 10 of us are going, I'm not so sure. Loved ones, beliefs are not orphaned. They move from someone or something to something else. And so I want you over these next six weeks, that was really hard for me to say, and I almost said something I shouldn't say, but over these next six weeks, I want you to really think about why do I believe? What is my belief rooted in? Now, here's what I want you to know, that when it comes to trusting Scripture, here's what we don't believe. We do not believe that every time the Bible is quoted, it is done so accurately. Okay? We don't believe that. We don't believe every time the Bible, we don't believe everyone who says this is what it says in the Bible is quoting it accurately. Like I was watching a show the other day, and I had an athlete who was talking about polygamy, I imagine they have a lust and a sexual issue in their life. That's just, that's just pure opinion and speculation on my part. But they were talking about how they were reading in the Old Testament, and it was like, well, Abraham had multiple wives, and like David had multiple wives, and they were blessed by God. And I was watching it, and I was like, no! Like, this is like Bible 101, 101. And for some of you, this may be revelatory. Not everything in the Bible is for you to replicate. Okay, a lot of what's in there is to show you what not to do. And it doesn't hide it in there. It shows it in all its guts and glory so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes. Like, for example, none of you should have Samson as the one who your life is patterned after. Some of you are like, I don't know who Samson is. That's another day for another story. I'm just saying, he's not a great example unless you want your life to end brilliantly honoring God, but the rest of it. Again, some of you also get, well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross is an amazing person to look like who is dying beside Jesus, and Jesus turns and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That is an extraordinary thing to see, the grace of God. Don't emulate the thief on the cross's life. So there are some things, listen, Bible 101, there are some things in the Bible that are descriptive. This happened. And then there are other things that are prescriptive. You do it also. Anything that Jesus did, prescriptive. Anything that humans do, be careful. <laughs> Least you get into a disagreement with your husband and go looking for a tent peg. <laughs> Only biblical scholars will understand what I just said right there says it in the Bible that there was this disagreement. A woman had a disagreement with her husband, and so he was asleep in the tent, and she took a tent peg, and she drove it through his temple. Go and do likewise. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's feminism at a whole other level. So each time the Bible is quoted, it, it is not done accurately. I don't care if it's on YouTube by a Christian. doesn't mean it's accurately being reflected. There's a lot of madness out there right now, loved ones. Oh, my word. And each time the Bible is used, it is, every time that we don't believe every time the Bible is used, it is done so in a God-honoring fashion. If your motive isn't love, you're not honoring someone by using God's word. Say it again. If your motive is to fix them, change them, because you don't like them, use your words, not his. 
<laughs> but I want him to change fast, and I want to use a really big hammer. <laughs> yeah, it may be effective in producing shame, but shame will not produce Christ-like fruit of the Spirit. Why do I say those two things? Here's what we know. The devil knows and quotes the Bible better than you and I, yet he never does it accurately or in a God-honoring fashion. And so let's talk about this book as foundational just for a few moments, and I want you to think about the way you approach it today, that's all. When I use the word foundational, all I mean is the impartation of true and sound wisdom from God to humanity. And that's what I'm talking about, from God to humanity. Because when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to starting with like, what is the Bible? There's two ways that we as Christians view this book. Because before the Bible speaks about you or your situation or the world, the story starts first with God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, in the alpha, God. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we can have a lot of conversations about specifically how that happened and like, was there gaps and is it thousands or is it billions? Those are good conversations. But for followers of Jesus, the first thing that this book actually says, it is not a story about you. It is a story about God. I'm going to say it again. What is the Bible? It's not a story about you. It's a story about God. And if you get that wrong, you get off on the wrong foot right away. And it's profound. It really is. Because before the Bible is a set of beliefs and creeds, it is God's revelation about himself. Isn't it wild to you? Like, let me give you an example. How many of you, if you're reading the Old Testament, there are some things that you like shudder at in there? Just me? Okay, animal sacrifices. We're all good with that? How many of you know it's really difficult to be in 2022 and to go, go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years? So imagine yourself being a human and not knowing how to please God. Imagine yourself creating gods like Moloch, where children are being sacrificed to this God and people are cutting themselves. You can see it in the story of Elijah. And the God of heaven comes along and begins to talk about sin and atonement and says, for your sins to be forgiven, it's this act. The Bible is this progressive story revealing Jesus. But if you didn't know what pleased the gods and then you had the God of heaven say, I am not pleased and burnt offers and sacrifices, what I'm looking for is obedience. But for you to know the weight of what you've done, this is what it requires. Do you see that through the lens of hardship or do you see it through the lens of love? Do you see it through God being known? God has a name. And so we approach the Bible in one of two ways, to know ourselves in the world, like, ooh, how can I get blessed? How can I get more? How can I get, ooh, how can I be awesome? We approach the Bible to know ourselves in the world. That's one way. That's one approach. And I, I, I would suggest to you that it's maybe the starting point for every single one of us. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, it's a perfectly appropriate starting point. And I, and I don't mean to demean or diminish it in any way. It's how I started as well. Like when I began to engage this book and the author of this book, it's I wanted to know myself. What, how, what does it have any relevance in my life? How does a book that was written this, this, this old have any relevance in 2022? 
That's one way you can approach it. But in your following Jesus, if you need to mature, which all of us do, as followers of Jesus, at some point it has to shift to be, which is to know God in the world by which we come to know ourselves. I'm going to say it again, to know God in the world. So either this is a story about you and God's relationship with you, or it is a story about God and God's relationship with you, whom you are called to be more like, not God to be more like you. And you can notice it's evident in your prayer lives. If, if your prayer life, and again, I'm not demeaning or diminishing it, I'm simply saying, notice how you pray. If all of your prayers are, God, join me in what I'm doing, you may be looking at the world through self first, not God first, versus, God, where are you at, where are you at work in the world, and how do I join you in what you're already doing? Notice how you pray, how you think about the world. See, if your approach is A, if you see the Bible through the lens of yourself first and then God, and I started there, if, if that's what happens, then, then you're going to ask questions like, living in the world, how does this benefit me, and how does it harm me to believe this book? Like, all the stuff in it, how does it benefit me, and where does it harm me? How does it advance me, and then where does it affect me? In other words, I'm going to have a very, very selfish relationship with this book. If you approach this, though, with B, which is you see the Bible through the lens of God first, then humanity, then living in the world becomes this ongoing trusted relationship of, God, would you teach me how to trust who you are and then how you describe flourishing in life? And in that, may I find my identity through relationships, events, and circumstances. God, show me who you are, who I am in you, how you've created me to be, and then how am I to flourish in the world. There's two ways in which we do it. And here's just an observation that I've noticed. If, if you only live in self, everyone say self. If you only live from a self perspective in regards to the author of this book and this book, if you only live from a self perspective, here's what will happen. And I promise you in terms of your resiliency is you're gonna feel a ton of societal pressure to live in the world in which we live. And I don't want you to be combative, but what this book talks about and what our world believes are quite different. And there's going to be conflict. And as Romans, we read it a few moments ago, if you only believe this from a self-based perspective, then you're going to begin to feel pressure from the outside to conform to the ways of the world, which again, have sourced belief in something that are promising a way to flourish that through history, you can see again and again and again, it's proven it doesn't work. But you're gonna feel a ton of pressure if someone, if you're a people pleaser and somebody's opinion of you is your foundation and your ceiling, then your identity is going to be rooted in their perspective of you. And as good as they are, here's all they know. They're not perfect. They don't see you in all of your fullness. If your identity is rooted in getting everybody to like you, then at some point you're going to feel pressure around these things. Here's a good example. Has anybody ever begun to read this book and you experienced something called conviction? It began to point out, here's a lie from the pit of hell. God only wants you to feel happy, blessed, 
and good all the time. Some of you are like, time out. That's the bedrock of my beliefs. I know. Okay, okay. God wants you to feel those things. But let me just put it in a human reality for you for a moment. Has anybody here ever been in a relationship with any other human being? Let me see your hands. Okay? Anybody here being in any relationship with any other human being where the only thing in that relationship you have felt is happy, blessed, and good? Can I see your hands? Every husband, get your hand in the air. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? How? That was softball. We know the answer is no. In fact, we would actually say that your relationship isn't healthy if that's all you like, great. Because I can love somebody and work through conflict with them. In fact, when they say to me, hey, when you did this, this is how it made me feel. Emotional maturity is not saying, oh yeah, this is how you make me feel. That's emotionally immature. <laughs> Emotional mature. Some of you are clapping, <laughs> oh no, oh no. Now you is preaching. <laughs> Emotional maturity is, oh, okay, let me understand how what I did, what I said, how it affected you. I can be in love, and the most powerful thing that my kids or my spouse can say to me is this is what you did, and I can feel really bad, and I can change in that area, and that's actually a sign of profound love and growth. But if every time they share with me what I do, if I don't change that, I don't mission, I don't acknowledge it, it'll affect the relationship. And we do this imperfectly. Your heavenly father does this to you perfectly. He will convict you. So there are some of you, the moment you begin to feel guilt, you go, that's not God. Ooh, careful with that. Careful with that. Well, God would never make me feel bad. Yeah, he would. If what you're doing is harmful to yourself, it's harmful to others, and ultimately when we call ourselves Christians, if it's harmful to those who want to understand who God is, yeah, he will. If you don't feel any guilt, there's a psychological word for that. You're a sociopath. <laughs> now, what I'm not saying is God will shame you. I gossiped about you. Really? When? It's an example. I gossiped about you I got caught and I feel bad about that. I feel bad that I gossiped. I feel bad that it harmed you. And I confess and I admit it's sin. I gossiped. That's guilt. Shame. I'm a terrible person. I can't do Christianity right. I'm always a failure. That's the language of Satan. That's the language of the enemy. That's the language. When does the enemy lie? Every time he opens his mouth. He's the father of lies. And his most profound lies are half-truths. They're rooted in things that you did, but they are not who you are in Christ. And if he can get you to believe who you are, then you will never live in who you are in Christ. So guilt is from God. Shame is from Satan. Just an example as we said a few moments ago, one of the things that makes trusting this book messy, the Bible messy, is there's only ever, ever one human who ever lived perfectly congruent with who God is. 
John 14, verse 9, we've said it a couple of times. Jesus said these words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So if you wish to get the most vivid, clear picture of the Bible, uh, stop looking at Christians. Look to Jesus. I'm not saying stop having mentors, stop having coaches, stop having people in your life that you admire. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, can we just honestly admit what we talked about a number of weeks ago, that none of us should, every one of us should strike this from our vocabulary, never ever say these words again. You know what? I'm not perfect. Nobody thinks you are. (laughs) Nobody. Like some of you, some of you admitting you're not perfect will be an answer to someone's long-suffering prayer. And I say that actually sincerely. You never have to begin a sentence with, I'm not perfect. There's no expectations. Every one of us isn't perfect. A pastor, I can't remember the name of the one who said it, and I'll paraphrase it, but if, I, if they said, if I were to summarize the critique of the culture to the church today, it would be this. The culture doesn't just not believe this book. They don't, but that's not the profound problem, loved ones. Do you know what the critique of the culture is? And I actually think it's true. The culture is saying to the church, I don't believe that you believe what you say you believe about this book. Because if you did, why does your life look no different from mine? That stings. And remember, guilt, God. (laughs) I'm a terrible Christian. Satan. One of the things that makes faith messy, sadly, is me. When I claim to follow Christ but don't reflect his character with someone in particular, or someone or in a particular circumstance or an event. Our inconsistency in following Jesus can make it more difficult for some other people to trust God, which is actually good news. It's not good news if the Bible is a book about us, because then all the weight's on us to live this outright. But it's not. That's not what the book is about. The Bible is a book about God. And let me show you something pretty profound. I've done this a number of times. It's one of my favorite things to do. Okay. How many of you, um, I just said not to say it, but we're going to do it anyways. Okay, how many of you messed up this week? I love that passion. Okay, how many of you messed up this week? How many of you want to volunteer someone else, letting them know that they messed up this week? Okay. Again, again. That's an IQ question. Don't, don't, don't go, especially if it's something you love, don't go for it. Okay, can I show you something? Um, in the story of this book, this is perfection. The story is perfect here. Perfect. You, do you want, you want me to show you what happens when you and I show up? This is good news, loved ones. You know what it means? 
that when the story stopped being perfect, watch it, watch, watch a floor and a ceiling. Alpha and Omega. He who began a good thing is faithful to see it through to completion. If this is a book about our perfection, the story is going to be awfully short. But this is a book about God at work in the mess of humanity. It is not a book about self and humans, then God. It is a book about God, so the weight is on Him working in the midst of humanity. So this is profoundly hopeful that God is at work in your story and in your life. If the story, it was a, if the Bible was a story about us, then God, it would be forever messy. But it's a story about God, then humanity. I'm often asked what I believe about authority, money, divorce, identity, sexuality, politics, and science. And all of these are very, very important questions as they deeply impact people's stories. But the first question I often respond with is, what do you believe about God? Because what you believe about God, Augustine said, is the most important thing about you. Because what you believe about God, God defines both your floor and your ceiling when you and I are engaging in conversation. I need to know, you. are we even talking about the same book at all? God is love. And everyone said. But what does it mean then for us to love God? Oh, that same person, John, I told you about earlier, this is what he wrote in 1 John 5 verse 3. Uh, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Closing illustration. I know I've gone a bit over. Closing illustration. Accepting God's invitation means I freely enter into a covenant relationship with God where His Word becomes binding on my life, not from law, but from love. And say it again. Accepting God's invitation to be a follower of Jesus means I freely, everyone say freely, not coerced, not manipulated. I freely enter into a covenant relationship with God where all of his word, even the parts that I don't like, become binding on my life, not from law, but from love. Closing illustration. A number of years ago, I stood at a church altar uh, with Lori. And we shared these things with one another called vows. And there's things in the vows that I don't like. Like in sickness and in health. I like health. For richer or for poorer. And I'd prefer if like she would make all the money and I can stay home and like pray for her. Power of the women. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better or for worse. I don't like anything worse. Nothing. I don't like a piece of hardwood floor that looks worse. I don't like worse at all. But here's what's beautiful. I love her so much. All these years later, I am more in love with her than I have ever been at any point in my entire life. Here's what I can tell you. Our life has had sickness and health. And it's, I never get up with this mindset. Let me rephrase. 
seldom get up with this mindset. I have to love this woman today. It is the joy of my life. It is the honor of my life. She has my abiding affection. And so the covenant relationship with her that I have, it means that I do things and I don't do things with others. But I don't do it from law. I do it from love. And even if I talk about our marriage, let me tell you, it is imperfect at the best of times. Now, in the person of Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ, God invites you covenantally into a relationship with him. And he says how to live and how to be in the world. Do you view that through the lens of law? Or do you view it through the lens of love? And here's what's remarkable, and I don't say this quickly or with, with any kind of like, I understand, I, I'm not like an elephant trumping through here because I know when I talk about covenant and marriage, I'm talking about a lot of you and you have profound pain in this area. But here's what I want to promise you. No matter how unfaithful you are, your heavenly Father will only and ever be faithful towards you. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. Why can I say that? Because it's in this book. And this book tells me about the author's character of this book. So when you defame this book and we degrade this book and we ignore this book, we don't worship this book. We worship the author of this book. But we come to know the author and how to worship the author of this book from this book. What is the Bible? That's our first point. May God bless and keep you.